0: God doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. This is what God does. He renews his creation. He restores his creation. He doesn't abort earlier plans and start with new ones. Well, another place in scripture where we read about newness is in the Old Testament and in the book of Lamentations. I invite you Turn there in your Bibles if you are able. If not, the text will be projected above me. Lamentations Ezekiel Daniel in the Old Testament. It's a very dour book if you've ever taken the time to read it, and I do encourage you to do that. An account of Jeremiah's lament over the destruction of Jerusalem in the wake of the Babylonian captivity. And near the center of this book, we have the startling and promising words of encouragement that I want to speak to you about this morning. Lamentations 3, and I'll read verses 19 through 24, 19 through 24 of Lamentations 3, Here, Jeremiah says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. I want to wish you this morning a very happy new year, though I acknowledge that it can seem rather trite to say so. In this church community, there's been no shortage of suffering and tragedy, not least the deaths of family members and close friends, including the tragic death of Lisa Smouter, known to many of us in this congregation and for some time. And this tragedy extends to me personally as well, because this past week I lost a cousin whom I set up with her husband, who is a friend of mine from Grand Prairie, Alberta, where I pastored for many years. She died rather suddenly at the age of 45. A mother of four boys was admitted to the hospital without much prior illness, and in two days she died. It's all very tragic. And so we are inclined in the outset of a new year to Wish one another a happy new year, but is it fiction? There are so many stories of personal tragedy and personal suffering, and we haven't even talked about the plight of the world in which we live, about the global suffering. It would take me too much time this morning to recount all of the tragedies that are occurring in the world, the conflict, the hostility, the bloodshed, the hatred, the war, and so forth. I find myself, and perhaps you do too, sighing. I sigh and then I sigh again, and that's a sign of anxiety or depression, isn't it, where your body feels the need to reset the respiratory system. Now, one of the things that I deeply appreciate about Scripture is its brutal honesty about suffering. The Bible is anything but trivial, anything but superficial when it comes to accounting for the reality of suffering in the world. Now what's quite interesting is that this isn't what's said about the great hymn that's based on this passage that I read from the book of Lamentations. Great is thy faithfulness. It's a hymn many of you know and especially if you've grown up in the church. And there's a charge that's leveled against that hymn. Namely, that it ignores The reality of pain in the world, that it gives a rather rosy depiction of life in the world, that it isn't honest with the suffering that we encounter in this world. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. It's all rather excessive, don't you think? A very rosy picture, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Who among us this morning could really sing that? So I want in the time we have together to think about this great hymn based on this great text and whether it rings true, and as we go through this passage, we're going to move from despair to hope through a change in perspective. If you're taking notes this morning, three points, despair, perspective, and hope. Well, the book of Lamentations, of course, records Jeremiah's vivid description of Jerusalem, now destroyed by the Babylonians. The walls are, of course, down. The buildings have been ruined. The streets are vacated. The inhabitants have either been killed or they've been taken captive. There are few survivors so distressed, so hungry, so destitute, they've resorted, in some accounts, to cannibalism. The city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah says, is like a widow bereft of a husband and children. She is comfortless and hopeless And the enemies of Israel on the outside are only gloating at the demise of Jerusalem. Isn't Jerusalem, according to the Jews, the joy of the earth? Isn't it the perfection of beauty? But now, look, it is in ruins. It's been burned to the ground by the Babylonians. And for Jeremiah, this isn't even the worst of it, because it seems that God has left Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where he so long resided, because the temple has been destroyed, the sanctuary has been vacated, the altar has been ruined, the priests are no longer present, the sacrifices are no longer offered, the law of God is no longer expounded, and Jeremiah knows, as he and the other prophets say, this is because God is angry. He's angry with Jerusalem, and he's sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem to destroy it, because of decades of rebellion on the part of the Israelites. And what you discover as you read through the book of Lamentations is that it isn't simply the lament of national suffering. You find personal suffering, and that becomes apparent at the outset of chapter 3, where Jeremiah chronicles his own suffering in this context. And it begins with the words, I am the man who has seen affliction, by the rod of the Lord's wrath, and what follows is a catalog of vivid images that enable us to draw a composite of Jeremiah. He is broken and beaten and imprisoned and mauled and mocked and trampled on. And there are scholars who say, well, Jeremiah here is personifying the suffering of the city, but that makes it sound as if Jeremiah is not suffering himself, and he is. And Jeremiah in this chapter, we might say, is suffering to the very point of despair. And we get in verses 17 and 18, the lowest point in the entire book, one of the lowest points in all of Scripture, where Jeremiah says, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. He has forgotten what happiness is, and he is now hopeless. Well, what can possibly lift the spirits of a man so melancholic? What can possibly lift the spirits of Jeremiah in this deep depression, in what is truly despair? that brings us to our second point, perspective. Jeremiah's hope is gone. He can't remember what happiness is, but he can remember something. Verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. That kind of memory is uninvited. It's the natural emotional response to trauma, not least the violence of war, it is the phenomenon of flashbacks, the phenomenon of nightmares, and it intensifies in verse 20. The NIV has, I well remember then, literally in the Hebrew, remembering my soul remembers. It's a vivid way in Hebrew syntax of communicating the sense that this is a vivid, frequent, painful, visceral, emotional memory. That is hard to let go because Jeremiah was there. He experienced the final suffocating fires in the city of Jerusalem. He witnessed his friends, family members, either slaughtered or taken captive by the Babylonians. And these events were indelibly etched into his memory. He can't but remember He can't remember what happiness was. But following this reaction of emotion, we have an action of the will. Verse 21, yet this I call to mind. He is making a conscious choice. I will think about this. He is making a resolution. He is determined. He needs to address his emotions. He needs to think through them. He needs to call something to mind. This I call to mind, and the this is emphatic, and it's a contrast with his previous experiences. Well, what is the this? Well, the dramatic answer that the text provides is the Lord's great love. My microphone is rubbing up against my beard, I think. Yet this I will call to mind, namely God's great love. Now, of course, beneath that English translation lies a very special Hebrew word, chesed, a famous word in the Old Testament found in many places, one prized by Jews and Christians today because it conveys the sense of God's loyalty to The relationship that he establishes with people, it's sometimes translated steadfast love, sometimes unfailing mercy. It is the way that God introduces himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. He says, I am the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed. Abounding in steadfast love, abounding in loyalty, abounding in unfailing mercy. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will forever be your God. You will forever be my people. Are you baptized this morning? Well, then I can say to you, God loves you intensely. If you're not baptized, God also loves you, but when you enter into a relationship with God, or rather when God enters into a relationship with you, you become the recipients of very special promises. You become the beneficiary of a very special loyalty that God has. He pledges Himself to us. We, we hear this, we see this when we have a baptism here at Blessings. The, the extraordinary loyalty of the Lord to His people. I don't know how many of you here this morning are familiar with Eugene Peterson, the famous individual who paraphrased the Bible's message in, or the Bible the, paraphrased the Bible in what he titled the message. And at his funeral, his son spoke, and his son said, You know, my father really only had one message. It was a message he would whisper in my ear at night when I was lying in bed, and it is this: God loves you, he is on your side. He is coming after you, and He is relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you, and He is relentless. That's God's great love, and that's amazing news for you and me this morning. Our sins are not forgiven because our lives are so good. Our sins are forgiven because God's love is so great. Our sins are not forgiven because our lives are so good, they're forgiven because God's love is so great. How great is God's love? It's so great that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not die, but have everlasting life. And the prophet Isaiah says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all, and it's because of the Lord's great love that we are not Consumed, Jeremiah could say it. Then we can say it today. But Jeremiah doesn't only. We're still on point two, by the way. Uh, I'm just having fun with Connor, who's doing the slides, and he's eager for this sermon to be done. And I'm saying, oh, we're still. <laughs> so we're working our way through here. We're making progress. Connor's very eager to get to hope, you know, but we're still on the way from despair there. So. It's not just great love that God promises, right? It's compassion. That's what's mentioned next on failing compassion. That isn't simply some kind of poetic repetition. Compassion conveys something different than love. Compassion is God's disposition to those who are weak and frail and powerless. And uh, we don't always feel that we're sinners, I mean, we ought to, of course, experience guilt, but there are moments where our plight is simply that we feel weak, and we go to bed at night, and we have difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. That's weakness. There are some days when we want to throw in the towel. We want to give up. That's weakness, powerlessness, helplessness, hopelessness. The world can be very grim and very dark for us at times, even when we're full-on surrendering to the Lord, full-on repenting, we still experience weakness. And you may remember, if again, if you have any familiarity with the Bible, the, the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, where there was this man who was uh, beaten and robbed and then left to die in a ditch, and the Levite passed him by, and then the Samaritan came along and took pity on him and bandaged his wounds and took care of him. And Jesus asked the lawyer, who is a neighbor to this man? And this the lawyer answered correctly, the one who had compassion. And that's what God has for you. We're not talking here about the forgiveness of sins. The problem with the, the man in the ditch was not sin. The Samaritan was unable to grant forgiveness. The man was weak and he was powerless and he was helpless and what he needed was compassion and that's what he received from the Samaritan. Now imagine what 2024 would be like if you could enjoy God's great love. And his compassion. And I'm saying to you today, this is what God promises you His great love and His compassion. How often does He promise this to you? Every morning. His great love, His unfailing compassions are new every morning. Jeremiah, you see, had been brought to the point of despair, in the pit of despair, broken, beaten, imprisoned, mauled, mocked, trampled on. All of these ugly, uninvited emotions that he must process. But he makes a resolution, an action of the will. This I will call to mind. God's great love, his unfailing compassion, new every morning. And then he says in verse 21, and Connor is so excited to hear this, and therefore I have hope. And therefore I have hope. Now, what has changed? What about the circumstances in Jeremiah's life has changed? Nothing has changed. The walls are still down, the buildings are still ruined, the streets are still empty, the temple is still nowhere to be found, the sanctuary is still deserted, the priests are still absent. Nothing has changed in the circumstances. There's only one thing that's changed, and that's Jeremiah's perspective. So we have to ask, we have to ask ourselves the question: what perspective can possibly turn a man who is hopeless to a point where he says, "I now have hope." Well it's a, it's a perspective in which you turn your minds to God's great love and his unfailing compassions. In his hope, Jeremiah makes a theological affirmation. He says to, he speaks to himself, verse 24, "The Lord is my portion. God himself is, My portion. With the Lord, there is pardon for sin, and that's amazing. With the Lord, there is power for weakness, and that's wonderful. But there's only power and pardon if you have the Lord's presence. Which is to say, there's no way to enjoy this pardon, no way to enjoy this power, without enjoying the Lord himself. The Lord is my portion. And you see, this is what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He forgives us our sins. He helps us in our weakness, not just because he's generous, he is, but because he wants relationship with us. He loves us. He wants us to love him back. He wants us to trust him. Jesus, in that famous prayer he prayed in John 17, said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And with this theological affirmation, there's a theological implication. Verse 24, Therefore I will wait for him. And the root of the verb, to wait, is the same as the root of the noun, hope, in the Hebrew language, which is to say that there is no waiting for the Lord in the Bible that doesn't include hope. If you wait for a bus, you can never really be sure that the bus will arrive. That's not waiting in the Bible. There's the expectation of hope the Lord, the anticipation of the Lord. And God has bound himself to his people, the people with whom he covenants, people who are baptized. If you're not baptized this morning and would like to be baptized, please speak to Pastor Greg or one of the elders. But he binds himself to his people and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We heard it in Revelation 21, which Jesse read. It's this ongoing, uh, continuous promise throughout Scripture. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So let me ask you, will you have a happy new year? Well, what accounts for happiness? You know, uh, psychologists some years ago constructed what they termed, the happiness pie chart to identify the different ingredients in happiness. And they pointed out, and I have no reason to disbelieve, they pointed out that 50% of our happiness is attributable to what they call our set point, which is our genetic predisposition. And you probably know this if you have relationships with people that depression runs in families. And similarly, happiness runs in families. Do you know any families that are particularly happy? I know of some families where everyone is always smiling. And there is somebody who knows this family referring to the Zeckfeldt. You know, they're always smiling. Sometimes it's annoying. Most of the time, it's wonderful But here you're having an awful day, and you encounter this family, and they're all like. 50% of happiness is attributable to set point, to genetic disposition. Only 10% of our happiness, according to the psychologists, is attributable to circumstances in life. No big surprise for preachers. This is what we've been saying all along. Only 10% of our happiness is attributable to whether we're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, bald or ugly, whatever it is. Only 10%. Well, what's the remaining 40%? The remaining 40%, our psychologist friends say, is attributable to perspective. To the perspective you have on life some of the commentaries i read this past week were quite critical of the great hymn great is your faithfulness and the complaint is these wonderful words are lifted from the context and then beyond that the context is ignored completely and therefore they don't convey an accurate depiction of the Christian life, as if it is just hope, when in fact in the immediate context, Jeremiah is hopeless. They mention nothing. The words, the text mentions nothing of the pain that Jeremiah experienced. Well, perhaps. But here's the great irony The great irony for me is that people often sing these words in the context of personal tragedy, in the context of suffering, as if they intuit the context. The great irony is that this hymn, this great hymn, has sustained thousands of Christians over the years who maybe didn't know the context. Thousands of Christians have obtained from this great hymn a transforming perspective and renewed hope. And so, what's my advice for you at the outset of 2024? It's to sing this hymn often. Sing it to yourself, sing it to others. When you're grieving, when you're lonely, When you failed an exam, when you're struggling to pay the bills, when your girlfriend dumps you, when your relationships are broken, when you're uncertain about the future, or worse, when the future looks bleak and grim, when you've reached the point where you've all but forgotten what happiness is, then call this to mind. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. And when you wake up in the morning every day of this new year, you might not have fresh coffee. And you might not have freshly baked bread, but what God does promise you is fresh love, fresh compassions, new every single morning, fresh for you and for me. It's what God promises you in the Lord Jesus Christ, strength for today, bright hope for Tomorrow. So I can say to you this morning without in any way being trite Happy New Year. Let's pray together. This morning, our dear Lord, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we can have hope. Because he is the ground and basis of your great love and of your unfailing compassions. They come to us undeserved, but for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Please, by means of your Spirit, over the course of this year, enable us to call this to mind. Your great love, Your unfailing compassions, so that if we are ever at the point of despair, we might transition to hope, faint hope, soft hope perhaps, but real hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.